0: Welcome to Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, and listeners from around the world. I am Raymond Perez, and this is In Progress, the number one political radio show at the Johns Hopkins University, for now. It is probably June 4th when you're watching this. Now, we don't have time for a theme song today because there is a lot of misinformation out there these days. And of course, most of that misinformation comes from the right, but some of it from the left uh and you know on this show we try to call out the people not only who we disagree with and of course that's more fun calling out donald trump ted cruz for instance but calling out those we agree with is just as important so i would call out joe biden kamala harris bernie sanders all these different left-wing individuals and as a result i will call out left-wing media sources as well and there was a really huge left-wing i'm not going to call it a lie but I will say that there was a huge left wing movement, especially on the far left, that claimed that Joe Biden, when elected, would push for austerity politics. Now what is austerity? Austerity is basically a form of politics that tries to decrease budget deficits. So what that means is generally an increase in tax revenue. Uh, done in multiple different ways. Sometimes it's an increase in capital gains tax, increase in income tax. Sometimes it's an increase in payroll tax, which tends to affect the poor, and a decrease in federal spending. A lot of times that comes from a decrease in entitlements, uh, entitlements being Social Security and Medicare, at least in in the United States, and a decrease in discretionary spending, for instance, defense spending, or uh, spending on transfer payments, transfer payments being... A way to say welfare without saying welfare and generally a decrease in spending tends to also hurt the poor in a variety of different ways because it tends to be that the poor benefit the most from medicare medicaid and from social security and as well uh the poor tends to benefit from things like wic things like snap um these various federal programs that help subsidize basically the lifestyle of most poor people when their income can't necessarily provide the same thing that the government can. So, austerity is generally, among progressives, a negative economic policy. And even among most mainstream economists, they generally believe that, yes, austerity is actually bad economics. Now, that has changed recently. Um, there are some ec- economists who claim that perhaps austerity could be a good thing. It was especially big in the 2010s and probably even a little bit before that. But austerity now is extremely disliked among most economists. So this brings me to Joe Biden and what people have been saying about Joe Biden, at least uh, before this new budget came out. So there was a very big portion of the left that claimed that Joe Biden, if elected, would push austerity and even... There were discussions of that that the left would have to push Joe Biden left on issues regarding um, austerity, regarding the budget, regarding trying to create more spending. And it seemed as if, from the left's perspective, that Joe Biden would pursue austerity in a variety of different ways. Some said, which was actually crazy at the time, like legitimately get locked up in saying it was that bad. Uh, that Joe Biden would cut Social Security, which I, which like is basically obviously not on the cards for a Biden administration. It's not even on the cards for a Republican administration at this point, because Social Security is such a third rail in American politics, it really can't be touched. So this claim that Joe Biden would cut Social Security, that was big in January 2020. Uh, and it was even big in the sort of, I'm going to call them bad faith attacks throughout the entirety of the general election from uh, leftists who claim that Joe Biden was a right winger. This may seem crazy and like, Insane to some people who weren't on Twitter at the time. In fact, I wasn't on Twitter at the time. So it did kind of seem insane to me when I first heard it. But I heard it from a variety of different people on the left, like Kyle Kalinski of Secular Talk. And frankly, I don't watch Kyle Kalinske anymore. I think I watched him as my primary Bernie supporting news. This was at the time where I was just I was in college and I didn't have time to watch like a Sam Cedar or even a David Pacman, because If I wanted smart analysis, I would be reading a book, but I didn't want smart analysis. I wanted quick analysis. And of course that made me turn to someone like Kyle Kalinske. And eventually I found other left-wing media sources like Crystal Ball. Uh, And when I say left-wing, I don't mean like on the left, I mean like leftist media sources, as in people who are so left that they really don't care if the right wins. It's a very weird segment of the online left, but to be fair, it's a mostly online phenomenon. Regardless. It seems as if they claim that austerity would be the method of the Joe Biden administration. And it just wasn't true. So as we discussed last week, Joe Biden is pushing a $6 trillion, with a T, dollar budget. That is huge. That is amazing. Um, especially when you think of, number one, the $1.9 trillion spending package that just came out. Uh, that spending package was um, called the American Rescue Plan. Now you have the American Jobs Plan beginning to come, and uh, the American jobs plan is sometimes called uh, the Biden infrastructure bill. And this budget is just another uh, reminder that no, Joe Biden is not planning austerity, because of course he wasn't, and he was never planning austerity. So the other important thing to note is that it wasn't just like these online leftists who I understand their primary method, the the reason why uh, they exist is to make money and a lot of that money can be made. Um, by claiming that Joe Biden is terrible, and by sort of—I'm not going to say grifting because I'm not going to use that word at a, because I do believe that they believe what they say, but I, I do think that there is an unhealthy um, quality among people on the left, where and and on the right, and frankly in the center, where they go more and more extreme in their beliefs in order to chase uh, in, in order to, to chase clicks and to chase money. Um, that is absolutely fine in my in my book. I think that that's okay, and I, I think that they do that. I, I, I don't really know how you can argue against that, but I'm not claiming that, number one, that the center doesn't do it or that the center left doesn't do it, but it is true that that is done, right? If if, if you look at early to mid to late, it almost always is more and more extreme. Now, the one person who I think doesn't do this is Kyle Kalinske, as I mentioned, Um, I think he was probably the same in 2008. I never watched him, but perhaps he was. And, well, I guess, I think he voted for Obama in 2008, so that might not be true. But, uh, regardless, the point that I'm making here is that a large portion of the left, frankly, lied about Joe Biden. And, frankly, they also lied about the political state of the country. And that is a problem because, number one, I get that populists, um, and that's probably the best way to put it, left populists that left populists have to sort of continue to push this elite versus the people mindset, which that's not, like, that is not real political analysis, to be very clear. If you talk about the elites in, in the in the populace, that's just not real political analysis. Perhaps I'll change on that at some point. But right now, that just seems almost completely silly to me to, to really claim that. Uh Instead, you might want to call out the rich, you might want to call out the 1%, you might want to call out a variety of different people. But just saying elites just makes that, like, it makes that criticism fall flat. It's not even real Marxist criticism, which at least I'd respect. It's uh, it's just unusable because it's not real. So that sort of populist left has sort of lied about Joe Biden, and now no one's apologizing for it, which I find weird because Joe Biden is not doing austerity like they said that he would. I may not have mentioned this. I don't think I did, but this was actually. Um, this this idea for this segment came to me from a, a recent Jacobin article. When I say recent, I mean February 2021, so not that recent, called The Left Has Slightly Loosened the Cold Grip of Austerity Under President Biden. And I say this uh, because Jacobin itself published the last thing the economy needs is Joe Biden's austerity uh, during the November election. So it seems almost silly to, to say that because austerity... Was never considered by President Biden, and and, and we know this because President Biden um, sort of he he uh, appointed two nominees to the Council of Economic Advisors, Heather Boushey and Jared Bernstein, who are economic progressives, and he nominated, as we mentioned in a very earlier episode of the show, Cecilia Rouse um, from Princeton, who may not be a progressive in the economic sense, but she is at least an economic liberal, definitely on the side of the left more than the side of austerity politics so it was basically true for the longest time that austerity was never happening but yet constantly you heard from the left that joe biden would push austerity if he came into office but we see right now with this 1.9 trillion dollar spending package that just passed the six trillion dollar budget that will pass probably and um and this uh addition of infrastructure into this um, budget reconciliation bill, that will definitely, it should definitely, I'm not going to say it will, because you still will have people like Jimmy Dore saying, Jimmy Dore and Brianna Joy Gray saying that Joe Biden is literally killing millions of poor people, but you are probably going to see the death of austerity under president biden you're probably going to see a resurgence of corruption or or something else but it's not going to be austerity because austerity has been doomed to fail and it will continue to fail as long as it is pushed and it's not being pushed uh either by the left and frankly by the right because as we discussed austerity is raising taxes which the right doesn't seem willing to do maybe if you count the salt deductions we'll see that uh in the future so we will continue to cover progressive media screw-ups the failure of austerity and the joe biden administration and frankly this is really shocking but all you have to do to learn more is to subscribe to in progress on youtube and you can tell me whether you agree was progressive media right to claim joe biden would commit the cardinal sin of austerity politics well with the collapse of the public option maybe and we'll cover the public options advanced through laboratories of democracy next okay so We just finished covering the failure of the austerity Joe smear. And you can watch that if you haven't already. Or if you're on the podcast, don't rewind it. Continue listening. Okay. We have great shows still. Um, but we still need to discuss the public option. And frankly, I know I'll get some pushback. People will say, well, you actually love Joe Biden. You are too positive with Joe Biden. You need to be pushing Joe Biden left. Frankly, I understand that, which is why in a previous show, I did cover Joe Biden skipping the public option this time around. Now, I'm not going to say that Joe Biden has abandoned the public option. I don't think he has, frankly. But uh, Joe Biden has not put the public option in this new budget, which is a problem. And we discussed that in, in the last show. So go ahead and watch that if you haven't. I think it's a second segment. I didn't post it on YouTube um, because I didn't post any of that show on YouTube. Not because I didn't stand by. It's a great show. In fact, go and watch it right now or not actually finish this episode then go and watch it. Even if you already watch it, frankly, I that's my homework for you. Go and watch it. But uh we already covered that and I will instead cover positive news about the public option and it comes from a state that you may not have heard of, frankly. You mean you don't even know if the state exists. Uh it's called Nevada. Some people say Nevada, they're wrong. The Spanish said Sierra Nevada, so I will say Nevada. But however you pronounce it Nevada is pushing its own public option. And to be fair, this public option is not the one that Joe Biden promised. It's not the one that Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg promised in 2020. However, it is considered a public option by the, the state legislature who is trying to pass it. And this public option sort of works differently, as I mentioned, than, than other public options. To be very clear, Nevadans who um, who, who sort of buy into this public option, uh, they actually aren't buying their insurance from the state, which is generally how a public option works. Uh, the public option tends to be that there is a state insurance plan that is basically available to anyone and people can buy into that public, can buy into that public plan while there are some who maybe make more money than those who buy into the public plan who can buy from private insurers. Now, this public option actually, uh, Instead of having the state create its own insurance plan, the state is forcing private insurance companies to create their own insurance plans with lower premiums. And for those who don't know, a premium is what you buy to get health insurance, just to be very clear. Anyway. A healthcare premium would be 15% lower in 2030 if uh, this plan was passed. Now some would argue that that is probably too far in the future and probably too little. However, it must be noted that this plan is kind of bare bones at the moment and although it seems like it will pass, it's not necessarily obvious how it's going to work um, and how this will actually help other than lowering insurance costs and probably lower Nevada's uninsured rate, which is one of the highest in the nation at 11.5%. And even among Hispanics, it's at 22%, making it an extremely difficult state to get health insurance in for a variety of different people, primarily those who are underprivileged. Okay, so let's keep talking Nevada because that wasn't the only important thing that happened during the legislative session. So Nevada also claimed that it should be the first 2024 primary state passing a bill to make it the first 2024 primary state. To be clear, uh, that is not necessarily without controversy. New Hampshire, who is the first primary state, of course, Iowa is the first caucus state, uh, but, New, but New Hampshire is the first primary state, they are not happy with Nevada doing this because now both of these states are the first primary state. So that is an issue. Um, not only that, uh, it, it, so first, it, it is important to say that Nevada probably has a better shot of being the first primary state, uh, it is more diverse, not only in terms of race, of course, race, definitely, but in terms of class as well. And not only that, there is a new progressive push in Nevada. Uh, so for instance, progressives right now have uh, a, a lot of momentum in Nevada. And the reason why is because uh, there was a recent election in Nevada um, around the uh, Nevada Democratic Party. And the progressives pushed out a lot of the Harry Reid establishment. Harry Reid was, of course, the Democratic Senate minority leader for a very long time. And he was the senator of Nevada in 2017. Um, he had to leave. I forget why. I think he had some. I think it may have been brain cancer. He had something and he had to leave for that reason. But he still has some control or at least the establishment in Nevada is still connected to the Reed establishment. And Harry Reed is a moderate Democrat. So progressives are actually now beginning to overtake the Reed uh, establishment inside the Nevada Democratic Party. So there are interesting things occurring in Nevada. And we'll t- definitely have to take a look at that in the future because it's going to become even more important in the 2024 primaries. Uh, so not only that, you have um, the death penalty, which actually was supposed to be banned in Nevada. We'll talk later in the show about what happened in Arizona with the death penalty. But in Nevada, the death penalty actually um, is not being abolished. And that is primarily due to Sisalak himself who actually does, well, he opposes the death penalty in most cases, but he actually does believe that death penalty should still be an option for things like mass shootings or terrorism. Of course, Nevada being impacted by a major mass shooting, I believe in 2017 in Las Vegas. So perhaps there are some questions about what's happening in Nevada with the death penalty. Uh, there are a few other things that occurred. Um, for instance, there was a plan to ban natural gas. And it seems as if that's not necessarily occurring at the moment. Sisalak had his climate initiative uh, in Nevada, and instead of passing a natural gas ban, they're going to instead look at the idea, which that ne- definitely does not bode well for the natural gas ban. Perhaps if you like or dislike that idea, you may be annoyed or not annoyed by that. Uh, there are other different bans um, that were considered. The non-functional turf ban to hopefully save water, uh, however, that may or may not happen. And finally, uh, these innovation zones that were a major scare in left-wing media uh, because these innovation zones had like corporate control, supposedly. That's not going to happen. Um, at least not even the Republicans support it. So uh, we will look at that in the future. Of course, we will have to look at Nevada closely over the next year because it's going to be important due to the 2022 midterms. Follow me on at Perez on Instagram or at Perez on Twitter for more political content. Those links are in the description or simply go to Linktree.com slash Perez. We will talk about Dr. Anthony Fauci after this. Okay, so after our coverage of U.S. political news this week, it's time to talk about some less important political news, which kind of sucks, but everyone is talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes, that Dr. Fauci, the one who is, I guess, around the news media so often, people are very upset about that. And it seems as if there is a conservative backlash to Dr. Fauci that one wouldn't expect until you realize what conservatism is and how anti-science conservatism is. But really, at this point, Dr. Fauci seems to be in some hot water, according to many right-wing media sources. We'll look at Tucker Carlson later on in the show. But The big one here actually comes from this article that I picked up from Fox News called Fauci Emails Spark Flood of Backlash Needs to Stop Playing Games, in quotes. Uh, That one is by Tyler Olson. So basically, the important thing to note here is that Dr. Fauci has been politicized from the very beginning. And I'm going to get into this sort of Rand Paul, Dr. Fauci debate that is occurring, especially in Congress. But before we do that, let's think about what the right claims is in the emails, what is actually in the emails, and where the emails were gotten from. And frankly, I'll actually start with the last one. Uh The emails were gotten in a FOIA request. They were not hacked. They were gotten in a FOIA request. FOIA being the Freedom of Information Act that allows journalists to request uh different federal agencies and some of their papers. So, FOIA was done by, I believe, BuzzFeed and the Washington Post, and Fauci and the NIH released a a few emails from the um, early pandemic. And basically, the right is claiming a lot of things are in these emails. The big email that they're pointing to as a smoking gun is a correspondence between Peter Daszak and Dr. Fauci. Now, to be very clear, Peter Daszak began the correspondence by thanking Dr. Fauci for sort of downplaying the lab leak theory. Now, the lab leak theory is this idea that it's a variety of different theories coalesced into one, but the primary goal of that theory is to prove that the COVID-19 virus leaked from a lab. That lab is probably the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and there's a lot of different claims that are auxiliary to the main claim that it leaked from from the lab uh, some of them are it was intentionally leaked some of them are it was leaked just cause a pandemic you know variety of different crazy people saying a variety of different crazy things now that doesn't mean the lab leak theory is wrong but it does sort of pretend not very well for the lab leak theory but that being said let's not judge a theory by its auxiliaries and instead let's see what what Daszak actually said so Daszak was or is i guess the Um, Someone associated with EcoHealth. Now, EcoHealth received millions in grants from the NIH. The NIH generally gives out grants to nonprofits like EcoHealth. And some of those grants made their way to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Specifically, according to Fox News, a $600,000 grant came from Fauci's uh, agency. Specifically, uh, Fauci uh, is, of course, the director of the NIAID the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's not the director of the NIH, as I sometimes hear said, and he's definitely not the director of the CDC, as I have also heard said, but he is a director of the NIAID, and some of the money from there found its way to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, this is a very interesting statement and a very weird correspondence to be upset at, because number one, Dr. Fauci never actually explicitly came out and said, the Lad League theory is completely and utterly wrong. He never, he never specifically said that. He may have sometimes, uh, downplayed it in the sense that he said that it was unlikely, but he never said that it wasn't true because there was no way to know that at the time. So, not only that, you have, um, a lot of different people, like, stretching the definition of this, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll go to, uh, Rand Paul in a second, but stretching what this email actually said, and it, it was just a, really a thank you for doing that. And it was not necessarily something that Dr. Fauci asked for, but it was sent. So this email was in the, was in the record and that email was released. Some of it was redacted, I believe. So we'll look at what happened there. Also, kind of funny. Some people are claiming that it being redacted means that, I think Tucker Carlson claims this means that there is some, uh, like, investigation, criminal investigation into Fauci, that's probably not true. I'm actually going to say it's not true right now, but perhaps it comes out later that it is. So I'm going to hedge my bets and say it's extremely, extremely unlikely that that's true. Uh, there are other claims that are being made uh, by the fire Fauci crowd that, for instance, uh, that Fauci knew that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was conducting gain-of-function research. So gain-of-function research is this subset of virology where there are viruses that are extant in the world extant meaning that, that they exist in the world and that the Wuhan Institute of Virology or laboratories like it would make these viruses more contagious they would make them more deadly in order to find ways to stop them and the argument is that perhaps the COVID-19 virus SARS-CoV-2 that that one came out of this lab And probably infected others. So the gain-of-function research, the argument is that Fauci may have funded the gain-of-function research, perhaps inadvertently, perhaps advertently, and that's what people are uh, trying to find out. Well, perhaps they're trying to find that out. More likely they're trying to smear Anthony Fauci because they're part of the culture war, thinks that Anthony Fauci is evil, and the other side of the culture war thinks that he's a hero. So there's a variety of different things going on there, but the important thing to remember is that this gain-of-function research is supposedly being blamed for creating SARS-CoV-2, which there is an argument for that, an argument against it, but we don't know that for sure, and there is an increasing polarization around this topic. However, I should also note that this isn't some republican fantasy. There is some major support for the lab leak theory, and uh, and also on the other side, gain of function research, there is support for both on both sides of the aisle. Um, President Biden, for instance, has asked for an inquiry into the lab leak theory and to see whether it's true or not. And for instance, the Trump administration actually was the one who lifted the ban on gain of function research imposed by Obama. So actually, there is a bit of partisan bickering going on, but it's not necessarily or it really shouldn't be a partisan issue. That being said, the Fauci emails are beginning to gain traction and we're not going to see the end of these Fauci emails. So I want to briefly talk about something else occurring with Dr. Fauci, and it is the Rand Paul Fauci debates that are sort of occurring. It's very weird what's happening with that, because I generally do support the right of Congress to have oversight. And in fact, I support it in this case. The Republicans, especially the Republicans at this point, because they're the opposition, They do have the right, and they do have, frankly, the duty to provide oversight to Dr. Fauci. For some reason, the Democrats actually are providing less oversight, perhaps due to the fact that Fauci is beloved by the media. Perhaps they don't want to upset the media because Dr. Fauci was seen as a sort of antidote to Trump. And the antidote to Trump was picked up by the liberal media. I'm calling them the liberal media. I should probably say the mainstream media. But it was picked up by the more liberal parts of the mainstream media, and pushed during the Trump administration. So perhaps that makes Democrats more anxious about actually holding Fauci accountable. And it is important to hold every elected official accountable. That being said, it seems like Rand Paul's Fauci debates actually don't do that at all. Uh, In fact, it seems like they're mostly culture war fights that really hold no actual substance. So Rand Paul will question Fauci and nothing will come of it because Rand Paul is asking really crazy questions. Like, I think Rand Paul tried to grill Fauci on masks, which at this point, it's kind of silly. Oh, another part of the Fauci emails was that Fauci said in like February of 2020 that masks might not work and or, or that or that he, he didn't say that masks might not work. He said that it was not CDC uh, that, that it wasn't the CDC's recommendation to push masks. And perhaps there was a reason for that. That was important. Uh, I think later on, Fauci said that the reason why that was pushed is because they wanted to have more masks for people inside, um, like 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 inside the healthcare industry. That being said, it did lead to some people questioning the mask mandate that was eventually put on uh, by several counties, several local agencies, and that may have led to further deterioration of the COVID. Uh, of, of the state of COVID in, in the country. That being said, I don't really think that, frankly, I, I don't think that Republicans would trust the NIH either way. That's just, that's just not going to happen. And then the other thing about that is that Fauci, is, is that grilling Fauci on masks now sort of seems silly because, of course, things change and public health is not necessarily direct, uh, pure science. It is an applied science and you do have to balance, um, the, the good and the bad. There are trade-offs with every science, like economics, like social science, and especially with public health. So with this public health issue that was occurring with masks, there are questions on how fast you could have done it, but it seems silly to now claim, well, actually you said that masks don't work in February. How do we know that they work now? Because the science is now supportive of that statement and the science was not supportive of that statement before. Of course you can question science. I think I think you should be able to question anything. But it seems a bit silly to like not know what happened even though it was extremely obvious what was occurring. So this Rand Paul Fauci debate. And I'm not going to play any here. I was going to play it at some point, but I decided against that because I wanted to do another special. Uh so this Rand Paul Fauci debate we we'll, we'll, we'll see it continue to play out and I hope that at this point we can get something better than this constant Rand Paul, Fauci discussion in the media. I hate it. I hope you do too. Uh, But later in the show, we'll discuss medical Jim Crow, and you won't want to miss it. So subscribe to In Progress on YouTube, and tell me who you think is to blame for the politicization of COVID. The liberal media, Dr. Fauci, Donald Trump, Fox News. You can find me on Twitter at RealRPerez. I'd love to hear you. After this, we're going to go into global news. Where we will discuss israel and the new israeli government you won't want to miss that so this one comes from the new york times can a new change government change israel this one's interesting it's by isabel Kirschner, and you might actually be shocked to hear what's happening with this next israeli government so first let's quickly discuss what recently occurred in israel if you are living under iraq you may not know that israel and gaza had a brief war Uh, I believe it lasted, like, around a week, maybe a little bit longer. And this very brief war was actually a huge, huge deal in the West. Uh, It actually led to a decrease of Western support for Israel when the West has generally tended to support Israel in a variety of different capacities over the past, like, since 1948, frankly. And basically, now you have a new government happening in israel as a result of a variety of recent elections and this election now has resulted in a new government so benjamin netanyahu who was actually the longest serving prime minister in israeli history and of course a far-right figure now benjamin netanyahu was prime minister from 1996 to 1999 uh, and he lost 1999 because he was probably extremely corrupt and the other thing is that. He actually was too left-wing. He, he Well, he wasn't left-wing. He was too centrist, too moderate, I should say, for the far right. And he was actually, of course, right-wing, so he was not going to be supported by the left. And I think uh, Ehud Barak uh, beat him in a prime ministerial race. And as a result, Benjamin Netanyahu, realizing that he had lost the right and that had actually led to his loss, he moved to the right uh, and then ran, to, ran for prime minister, I believe, again in 2009, and he won on a right-wing platform, and of course, over the next 10 years, he continued ratcheting the country's politics to the right. He very famously came to the United States, and he berated Barack Obama for his treatment of Israel, supposedly, in the uh, eyes of Likud, which is his primary party. The Likud is a far-right party in Israel, which many parties are far-right in Israel, but Likud is definitely far-right. And Likud had... A variety of different issues that plagued it. Primarily, a bunch of wars occurred during Likud's uh, time: the 2014 Gaza War, the 20 the one that recently occurred. Of course, a, a variety of other different flare ups that occurred during Likud's time in power, and also Likud had issues from the right, from from like Netanyahu's right. So Netanyahu was a right wing figure, but he even had a p- opposition from the far right, which he had during his first prime minister term, and as a result. Netanyahu is facing some problems in Israel. And that's probably an understatement because he has now recently lost his election. So Netanyahu is also facing corruption charges. And he generally, when you face corruption charges, as like in America, you can claim uh, parliamentary immunity. So in Israel, it's parliamentary immunity. Sometimes in, in America, it's called executive privilege. And Netanyahu is basically claiming this immunity so that he can't be prosecuted, but he won't be able to do that anymore if he loses his uh, his his prime minister seat, which it seems like he will. Um, so basically, there is a new prime minister, but that prime minister may not be who you think it is. Uh, it is not a center-left leader. The center-left did not actually defeat—well, I guess center-left did defeat Netanyahu—but the center-left is not leading the coalition at this precise moment— the leader of the coalition, the person who will be made prime minister after Netanyahu leaves, is actually Naftali Bennett. And Naftali Bennett is the leader of the far-right Yamuna party. And Yamina is actually not a very popular party in Israel. It only received seven votes, I'm um, sorry, seven seats in the, uh, in, in, in the parliament. Now, these seven seats are important because... You need to get 61 seats, I believe, to get a majority. And Netanyahu had 52 seats. Uh, well, Likud had 30 seats, but Netanyahu's coalition had 52 seats. And Yair Lapid, the leader of a centrist party in, um, in Israel, uh, and, that, and that party is not the blue and whites. It is the successor to the blue and whites. But Yair Lapid is the centrist leader of the Israeli opposition, and he only had 45 seats. So it seemed like Likud was better seated to get a parliamentary majority. But the issue is that when you have 52 seats or 45 seats, the question is, how can you get more seats? And Likud had basically reached its ceiling. Um, maybe if they had gotten Yamuna on their side, they would have gotten 59 seats, but actually you need 61 to become the uh, prime minister. So it seemed like Likud was never going to become prime minister and you'd probably just get another election. Now, Israel had, had many elections because this situation to continue to occur. So if you can't get a coalition, you actually have to, you, you have to go to another election. And in that case, Israel would go to another election and they had already had at least four elections in the past three years. I could be getting those numbers wrong, but it was a lot of elections. So that meant that Yair Lapid had to build his own party. And from there, uh so first blue and white had actually broken apart as a result of this of, of the issues that had occurred during the Israeli coalition fights in 2020 and 2019. Um, the, it, Blue and White had sort of like completely fallen apart as a result. Uh, but still, despite that, Blue and White could form their own... um They, they, they could still work together uh, and form a coalition to defeat Netanyahu, but they just weren't running together on the same ticket. Now, Lapid... Who was a, I believe a newscaster. I, I, I think he is, um, I, I forget why he's important, but he is like a newscaster. He's fairly well known in Israel. Uh, and he is a, a pretty clear centrist. So he wasn't really offensive to anyone. And as a result, uh, Lapid was able to sort of scrounge together his own coalition. And that coalition, number one, uh, that, that coalition included not only his own party not only the most of most of blue and white uh but he also got the new hope party which is a center-right party to join him and he got some of the joint list parties on um, the joint list is a coalition between a variety of different arab israeli parties uh you may not know this but actually arabs can vote in israeli elections it's just a lot of times the arab parties choose not to participate inside the government as an act of protest this is something generally called abstentionism but that's not what abstentionism is directly uh however that being said A lot of these Arab parties don't join governments. However, at this point, in order to take out Netanyahu, Joint List decided to give Lapid a lot of support. Now, not only Joint List gave Lapid support, but also another Arab Israeli party called Ram gave Lapid its support. Now, Ram is led by Mansour Abbas. Mansour Abbas is an interesting leader. He has represented his constituents, which are Arab Israelis, well. However, from a Western progressive standpoint, you may think that Ram and Abbas are distasteful. Uh, I believe, as a result of this coalition, Ram sort of imposed on the coalition as part of it joining that there would be no future LGBT laws passed, uh, at least under the coalition. And frankly, that probably wasn't going to happen anyway. But it just tells you what Ram is as a party and Ram's support. Ram was never going to support Netanyahu, but Rahm's support was integral in getting uh, Lapid over the top. And um, so Yair Lapid, again, the leader of the opposition, he now needed a few more votes and those votes had to come from the far-right Yamina party. So the Yamina party is a far-right party. There are so many parties in Israel, by the way, that it's, almost, it's extremely difficult to keep in track of all of them. I believe Yamuna is a split-off of Likud, because Likud was too centrist for Yamuna. I don't know necessarily, and Yamuna may be a different party, but basically, the important thing to know is that Naftali Bennett is in control in Yamuna. So, Naftali Bennett has a lot of different things that are pretty crazy of him. So, Bennett actually... his So, his votes were necessary, and as a result... Lapid had to give him something so that he would join the coalition to oust Netanyahu. This coalition was pretty widespread, but it was primarily in the center-left, so Naftali Bennett decided to join, but only if he would become the prime minister. And as a result, he will be the prime minister for a primarily centrist government, even though he is on the far right. So to discuss a few things that Bennett believes, Bennett does not recognize Palestine in the same way that, like, Hamas doesn't recognize Israel. Bennett does not believe Palestine has a right to exist. He supports, and that's, by the way, that's more far right than Netanyahu's position. Uh, he also supports settlements, which, as we discussed, settlements um, have sort of completely destroyed a lot of the Israel-Palestine peace process that had been occurring since the Oslo Accords in the 1990s. By the way, he also dictates what is occurring inside the coalition, because he is a prime minister. So, even though he's only serving until 2023, when most prime ministers serve for four years, and Lapid is coming in after him, uh, he's a, he's a sort of two-stater, meaning he supports a two-state solution, and he's more of a liberal. So Lapid will, will serve from 2023 to 2025, and Bennett will serve until 2023. So that being said, Bennett and, and Lapid will sort of hold this rickety government together with like, with like duct tape and, uh, and tax. It is not held together very well. I guess duct tape is is kind of a, a good thing to hold something rickety together, but it's not being held very well. You know what? It's not duct tape. It's not even tax. It's like scotch tape. So it's as strong a government as you would expect, which is to say not very strong because the government is made up of far right people, people to the right of Netanyahu, people who are centrist, people who are left and Arab Israelis. Just everyone who just doesn't like Netanyahu. So it sort of like was building up for 10 years. Netanyahu was eventually going to lose. And it seems like he lost in the weirdest way possible with the government of everyone who hates him. How fitting. Okay, so we have discussed Israel and Palestine in the past. We, we had an entire segment, I think 90 minutes of Israel-Palestine uh, that we did, I believe, it might have been a, a month ago by now. And this Israel-Palestine video is still available. If you go to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez, you can still view the three episodes directly related to the Israel-Palestine conflict. I'll see you here next time in the next video. If, if you're watching the podcast, you know, continue watching. But if you're watching the YouTube video, we will see you next time where we discuss the only successful Green Party. Very interesting. Okay, so we just discussed Israel. And now we're moving on into Germany. So Israel forms weird coalitions. As we mentioned, they formed a coalition between the former blue and whites, which were the centrists in Israel, with the far right extremists in Yamina, with the uh, Israeli Arabs, with the left. So there's a huge different coalition going on in Israel basically every time an election happens, just because there's so many parties. Uh, Likud had its coalition with the ultra-Orthodox parties. But in Germany, the coalitions are even weirder. Uh, in Germany, the coalition I think currently in power is the Große Koalition, which is between the Christian Democratic Union, which is itself, I guess, a coalition between the Christian Democratic Union and the Christian Social U- Union. Uh, the Christian Democratic Union is led by Angela Merkel, The CSU, which I briefly mentioned, is the CDU, but in Bavaria, but also more to the right than the uh, mainstream CDU. And that's because Bavaria is more Catholic and more conservative. Now, the CDU is an extremely moderate party in a variety of different ways. It supports the social market economy, something that you would generally see from left wing movements. But of course, it is socially conservative to put the Christian in the name, as it were. The CDU is a sort of aberration in european history not in a bad way although i guess aberration is almost always in a bad way but it 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 didn't really have roots in english conservatism it didn't really have roots in french conservatism its conservatism is much more separate from them it has more roots in a bismarckian politics which you may or may not know depending on how much you know about german history however it's not necessarily that important. It's more important to discuss the left in this story because the left is the kind of the center of this story. The German Greens are floundering, according to the Spectator, and the Green Party has begun to overtake the Social Democrats in the last, uh, run up to the election. So the Social Democrats are the traditional left wing party in Germany, just like the Social Democrats and to be the left-wing party traditionally in most European countries. However, what's been occurring in recent European history is a decrease in support for Social Democratic parties and uh, movements from the left outside of Social Democrats and movements from the Social Democratic parties more towards the center. This occurred with Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. It occurred with uh, Francois Hollande in France. And it's beginning to occur with different parties across Europe, how the Social Democrats tend to be now losing. So, the Social Democrats have basically lost a lot of support to the Greens. The SPD, which is what they're called in Germany, the Sozialdemokratische Partei von Deutschland, or not von, because Deutschland is actually allowed to be separate there. The SPD has been losing members to the Greens like crazy. The SPD was... In a coalition with the Greens, I think in the last time they were in power uh, with Gerhard Schroeder, Schroeder had to include the Greens because they didn't have enough numbers by themselves. But now the Greens, sometimes called Grüne, are actually having their own victory above the normal left, which is the SPD. So the Greens are led by Annalena Baerbock, who is a charismatic character, but the issue is that she has had a lot of different scandals over the past, like, couple of months since COVID hit. So, Baerbach had scandals relating to accounting. Um, supposedly, she paid herself Christmas bonuses from the party, which is, of course, an issue because it seems corrupt. And not only that, she has said a few different things that make people... I basically question her, like, general competence. For instance, she claimed that the Social Democrats were the ones who created the social market economy. However, as I noted originally, uh, that was actually the CDU, something that conservatives did, uh, like, decades before the SPD was ever in power. The other important thing is that she may not have gotten a bachelor's degree uh, from any school. She said that she got one from the University of Hamburg, but there's not really any proof of that. Uh, Instead, she probably got a different degree that isn't necessarily a bachelor's bachelor's degree or bachelor's equivalent. So the other important thing is that the Greens themselves have faced a few issues. Uh, For instance, a mayor named Boris Palmer said a racist joke and Palmer did not apologize. He refused to apologize and people argued to expel him. So the Greens are losing in unity. And that was something that they really had a lot of when they were one party and one kind of small party at the beginning. The issue with the Greens doing this is twofold. Number one, they're not a, they're, they're, they don't have a lock over their own base because their base moved from the SPD to them. Uh, and the other thing is that their base is primarily young people And those young people tend to have a bright eyed view of the world. And when politicians start messing up, they begin to start leaving those politicians. And we see that in the United States with hashtag fraud squad, for instance, uh, or or a variety of different silly things that are occurring with many young leftists throwing rocks at people who are kind of are are a little bit older and probably a little bit wiser. Uh, And that's occurring with the Greens as well. Um, there, there are some issues with young support for the Greens, because although the SPD has moderated, they are still the primary left party, at least in the minds of many left wingers and in the minds of many Germans. So it's going to be difficult for the Greens to not only have their own election and, and win it, frankly, but it, but it will be difficult to keep that election momentum up, because when a charismatic leader takes power, and I think I'll use Emmanuel Macron for this instance, when they take power without a party that backs them, they lose support quickly because charisma is not something that helps you govern. That being said, when you have a charismatic leader like say Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, who may have some issues here and there, the party that backs them is the party that continues to support them. And that's not something that, that will occur for the, for the German Greens because the Greens haven't built this brand loyalty that the SPD has or that the CDU has. And even then, this brand loyalty, as we've seen with the SPD, doesn't really mean too much. So perhaps the Greens may have a little trick up their sleeve. But that trick, however, is not going to be one that wins them the election, according to the Spectator. Of course, we're going to cover the German elections a lot more as we reach September, so remember to subscribe to In Progress and go to Linktree.com slash Raymond Perez if you'd like to see more coverage of the German elections. Last but not least, so we discussed a lot about how the left has seen collapses not only in Germany, but even in Israel. As we discussed, the Israelis have had their own issues with ousting their right-wing leaders we do need to discuss Peru. So, right now, there is a massive breakdown in Peruvian society and Peruvian politics, and we have seen that quite a bit in the past four years. Now, I, of course, did a segment on this last week, what happened in Peru, but it's heating up as we get closer to the election, which is June 6th, uh, this coming Saturday, maybe? So this election has been extremely extremely fraught it was between um or it is between pedro castillo who is a uh this article calls him a hard left populist it is definitely possible to call him a communist but i will refrain from doing so instead i will probably call him a marxist because he is quite literally a marxist not in any like uh like like fear-mongering way i'm not actually making any claim about him being a communist but he is a marxist and that is true so he wants to nationalize multiple industries, he wants higher taxes, which is fun, and uh, he wants a new constitution, and he also wants uh, to decrease the, um, the power of copper companies, which is good, by the way, especially if you live inside Peru. It definitely would be a, a very interesting economic proposal for you. However, this is something that has been run on by a lot of different people in the region. So, for instance, uh, uh, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, um, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela as well, uh, Evo Morales and Luis Arce in Bolivia. Uh, and this may or may not work out. In Bolivia, it has worked out in some extent, and in Venezuela, it has definitely not. So, these different anxieties are leaving some Peruvians a little bit upset with Castillo. Some Peruvians don't want to support Castillo because... He may be a communist and he may turn Peru into Venezuela or Bolivia or Cuba. However, there is a different question to note here, and it is the fact that his opposition is no savior. Uh, His opposition is Keiko Fujimori. Fujimori is a uh, right-wing Fujimorist, uh, to to, to use a term. Fujimorism is a neoliberal ideology. I use neoliberal in the original sense, meaning that she supports deregulation like her father. Uh, her father was Alberto Fujimori, um, sometimes called El Chinoche, meaning, um, meaning the, the Chinese Pinoche. Uh, basically, Chino is, by the way, not a slur in, in Spanish speaking countries. Chino is actually a term of endearment, but Chinoche, um being the Chinese Pinochet. Pinochet was a right-wing dictator in Chile, who was probably best known for his dogs that committed sexual assault on people, and his uh, helicopter rides for leftists. Uh, leftists were being tossed out of helicopters um, in the Pinochet government. And Pinochet was also brought into power in a, in a American-backed coup against a duly elected socialist president, Salvador Allende, by the Nixon-Kissinger administration. That being said, uh, the Fujimori government probably wouldn't be a good thing, uh, just because Fujimori is not a great leader. Uh, Fujimori was extremely corrupt, um, and probably, and not only was, was he corrupt, he also committed human rights abuses. Uh, so, Keiko Fujimori is not Alberto Fujimori, that should be noted, but Keiko Fujimori has a lot of the same support that Alberto had, and, um, and she is willing to oppose Castillo on the grounds of Castillo will be a Cuba or Venezuela type person. Castillo seems more likely to win, and the economic indicators basically show that that is not great for Peru. Uh, right now, you're seeing a massive, massive uh, dump of Peruvian cash. The, the Peruvian currency is called the soul and the soul is depreciating in value, which is similar to inflation, but not really. There's a lot I could go into. I'm an international monetary economics major, so I, I can go into that, but I'd rather not. Uh, basically, Peru is having many issues occur to it at once. You have a major recession, you have major unemployment. And if you have unemployment and inflation at the same time, that is perhaps the worst thing that you can have. So there is massive capital flight. People are leaving uh, Peru with all the money they can and they're trying to put it into the dollar into into something more stable so that the Peruvian soul uh, when it inevitably inflates, when it inevitably depreciates, uh, there will be less of an impact for them which that's not great for the average Peruvian, but for the wealthy, yeah, they they drop the money and leave. So the important thing to know in international economics is that what's more important, then what actually happens on the ground with economic indicators is the expectation of what will happen. That's extremely important for exchange rates and interest rates. So when that happens and people expect Peru to be a a weak country economically in the future, that actually portends a weak economy in the future. And that's not great for Peru, of course. So you have a decrease in capital, you have an increase in capital flight, excuse me, which leads to a decrease in investment. And that in itself can cause major issues for Peru. And we will see what occurs with that uh, in the future. We'll see if Peru becomes the next Venezuela, as Keiko Fujimori likes to claim. Um, but let's be very clear: Fujimori is not necessarily herself this great leader. Uh, Fujimori was arrested, I believe, on corruption charges. I think I don't think she was ever brought up on them, but she was arrested on corruption charges. And, uh, she may or may not pardon her father. There are a variety of different issues at stake with the Fujimori Castillo election. Um, I'm not going to make any endorsement, of course, because I don't live in Peru and none of you do. So most of you who actually care about the election are either think it's interesting or you're probably LARPers. So regardless, uh, let's just leave it there and say we're going to discuss Peru in the future, depending on what happens to it. If you, if you don't hear about Peru anymore, it, Probably will be a good thing, but if you're about Peru in the in the near future, it may be a bad thing. So let's continue to uh, listen to what is happening in South America, uh, especially as the Peruvian elections take place on June six. Of course, if you'd like to know more, uh, you you can of course go to In Progress with Raymond Perez. You can find it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, basically anywhere you get your podcast uh you can find it. And we did an episode where the we did like a twenty minute or maybe even thirty minute segment just breaking down the Peruvian election so that you know what happened in Peru beforehand and what happens uh and what's happening now. Um where we discuss Fujimori, we discuss uh PPK, we discuss um Biscatra and a variety of these different oh and uh, Marino of course and of course Sagasti, who is the president right now. Um we just discuss a lot of these different people and uh the problems that they caused for Peru, or that they tried to fix and then got impeached four times four. Uh, so yes, this Peruvian impeachment scandal is really interesting. Go back and watch it if you haven't. Uh, and we will see you next week where we discuss the Peruvian elections and their outcomes. However, of course, the show is still continuing. So look out for the next segment, which is on our favorite grifter. Yes, I'm using the G word grifter. Okay, so now it's time for my favorite segment, which is grifter of the week, of course. Uh, so we've had some great alumni of Grifter of the Week. We've had Ted Cruz. We've had Steve... What was his name? The guy who interviewed Trump. The guy from Newsmax. I'm saying it like you can respond to me and I can hear you. Uh, It's Steve Cortez, I believe. But yeah, Steve. Let's call him Steve. Uh, So we had some great alumni and today we're going to have an even more interesting alumni. Probably hasn't come on the show for a while. Uh, and We actually may not have ever mentioned him, which is interesting. But this one is actually... Probably very well known to a few of you. Maybe maybe you've never heard of him. And he is a... I'm not going to call him a failed journalist, but he definitely did not do well as a journalist for a very long time. He sort of went from CNN to PBS to MSNBC, and he ended up at Fox. Uh, he was really destroyed by Jon Stewart on the show Crossfire, which actually literally ended the show. He literally got destroyed so hard that he had to leave the show. Uh, and then he had his own nightly program on MSNBC, and he has been on Fox News since 2009. Of course, he's written two books, one of them, of course, called Ship of Fools, not a great one, and he also, I think, ran The Daily Caller, which is not The Daily Wire that's Ben Shapiro's, uh, but The Daily Caller, and last but not least, he replaced noted sex pest Bill O'Reilly on his new show called Tucker Swanson McNear Carlson Tonight, Tucker Carlson, of course, being the Grifter of the Week. Clap, clap, applause. Actually, we need a jingle for the Grifter of the Week. If, if you know anyone who can do that, you can email me or, you know, DM me on Instagram or whatever. Uh, regardless, we, we, do, we do need a jingle for Grifter of the Week. I think it would be kind of funny. Um, so, Tucker Carlson is one of my least favorite talk show hosts uh, because he just, he just rubs me the wrong way how he... Kind of, I'm I'm not gonna say that he that he grifts, but he does absolutely grift, right? Because if you ever watched Tucker Carlson, uh, before two thousand nine, even before like twenty fifteen, he never really sounded like this. Uh, but now he's gone completely, totally populist, insane. Uh, populists are falling for his rhetoric all the time, and he is loved by many on the right, uh, because he's a paleocon crazy. That being said, let's listen to what Tucker Carlson has to say about the new Jim Crow. Let's
1: hear this. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Hope you had the best weekend. Did not. If you're a middle-aged American, some of us are, you can probably still dimly remember back to what things used to be like in this country, say, 13 or 14 months ago. Wow. Way back then, before the revolution, pretty much everybody agreed that... This
0: is... That's very weird. So he he calls... He calls Joe Biden's "Victory of Revolution," just I think completely forgetting the actual insurrection that occurred on January sixth, where crazy people, primarily people egged on by Tucker, stormed the Capitol. Very interesting.
1: Segregation was the worst thing this country
0: ever did. <laughs> oh my god! I was, I've watched this like three times, and it is so funny to me. We, we, I think we might need to rewatch that. How he almost says, "See if you can catch it."
1: Pretty much everybody agreed that segregation was the worst thing this country ever did <laughs> how he almost says best
0: how he almost says the best thing this country's ever did like i'm not saying anything because people i i god knows i mess up quite a bit when i when i speak but this is almost self parody right like that's like that's almost insane
1: forcing certain categories of citizens into separate lesser accommodations barring them from public places treating them like lepers or untouchables
0: i just uh, had to turn the speed up
1: was completely immoral and wrong we were told that a lot and most of us strongly agreed it was wrong so yeah most
0: of us strongly agreed that that is true that most of us strongly agreed but the people who didn't agree tended to be on the right correct tucker i think you might want to mention that maybe not
1: imagine our confusion today looking out across the country the very same people, literally the very same, who just the other day told us that segregation was immoral. I think that happened in the 60s. I don't know if it was just the other day.
0: Uh, I, I guess, I guess you may have heard that it's, it's occurring now, but I think, I think that time already passed. I, I guess some people have problems understanding that today, maybe you're right, but, uh, segregation has basically been wrong always, number one, but I guess that happened in the 1960s, so.
1: Are now enforcing segregation. Should we be surprised? Probably not, but we still are. (laughs) Like, like, it's almost, it's like completely
0: parodic to, to see, like, like it's overly cartoonish. In fact, that, that is literally like a cartoon, uh, background. Um, sorry, not, not a background, cartoon imagery. But that is extremely silly to just like say, well, segregation is bad, right? Everyone?
1: How about these vaccines? We're being segregated by vaccines. Really? Just this morning, the New York Times informed us that unless you can prove you have taken the injection that the Democratic Party demands you take, you
0: are no longer... Pre- and public health officials, al- almost everywhere. It's not the Democratic Party. It's basically everyone with a brain is saying, please take the vaccine. Please take the vaccine.
1: ...permitted in bars, comedy clubs, even some dance competitions in the state of New York. You're too dirty to appear in public. You're not welcome near normal people. That
0: is, that is actually true. You are, you are too dirty to appear in public.
1: Want to watch the NBA playoffs in person? You had better be vaccinated to do that. Otherwise, the New York Knicks will bar you from Madison Square Garden.
0: Why? Why, why is that crazy? Uh, I mean, the number one thing is that the vaccines have a very strong uh, uh, effectiveness. However, to be clear, it's, they're not 100% effective. Uh, the only way that you reach the herd immunity necessary is if everyone gets vaccinated, or as close to everyone as we can get. So basically, that happening, I'm not really upset about it.
1: You can still go see a baseball game if you want to, but be warned. You will be sitting in your own roped-off section, marinating in your shame with the other disobedient bad people. Yeah, you should. Medical Jim Crow has come to America. We still at water fountains. The unvaccinated would have separate ones. Okay. It is just insane
0: that he calls that. I'm, I'm going to stop it here. But it, it is just insane that he calls it Medical Jim Crow. Like, like those three words should not really be combined. I'm not necessarily sure how Medical Jim Crow, frankly, Medical Jim Eagle, to be clear. Uh, I, I, I just don't know how you say that right? People who are who are unvaccinated have always been barred from doing certain things, like sending their kids to school, right? Uh, because you need a vaccine to go to school. That vaccine may be the MMR vaccine, maybe meningitis, but you need it to go to school, right? There are certain things that you can and cannot do with a vaccine. It just happens to be the fact that polite society wants you to take the vaccine, which is good, by the way. And as a result, there are certain things that unvaccinated people cannot do and some of those are basically to be unvaccinated and to spread the vaccine uh sorry to spread the to spread COVID-19 and if and if you do that without wearing a mask I, i i think it's probably fine for you to not sit with vaccinated people uh because if you actually do want to you know not be protected from the virus then i guess it's fine to be with other unvaccinated people but some vaccinated people may not have the same immunity that all vaccinated people have so perhaps there is a reason that you are separated that just makes sense to me so regardless of what is happening with tucker carlson and his grift which is not a great grift but but it but it is a grift nonetheless and frankly he is doing successful he, he is making a lot of money doing this grift. so let's let let's be charitable to him i mean of course i don't know if i need to be charitable to a swanson heir i think he probably has all the money that he needs but at this point I think it is safe to say that Tucker Carlson is grifting. And by the way, I'm not saying that grifting means that he doesn't believe what he's saying. I believe, frankly, that he doesn't believe what he's saying. I, I just I just don't think that he can. But grifting is swindling, basically. It's like pulling the wool over your eyes. And that is what this is. Uh, so, so it's not grifting for money. I mean, of course, he is doing it for money. And I guess that is something that you can grift for. But he is grifting not only for money, but also for political capital, which is probably even worse. If you'd like to see more of this grifter of the week coverage number 1, you can watch our past grifters of the week. I don't think I actually created a Steve Cortez thing cuz I didn't have the video for it, but uh but but you can watch them on In Progress with Aaron Perez on YouTube, of course, and don't forget to subscribe, like, comment, tell me whether Tucker Carlson is really a grifter, whether he really believes what he's saying. Say say whatever you want, really, just, like, leave a comment. We have another great segment coming right after this. Okay, so it's time for our final segment, which I will let Donald Trump say.
1: The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets.
0: Okay, so... This new segment is just general updates on stories I've covered in the past or stories that I wish I could cover. Uh, it's just random stories that come to my mind. I write them down. Like, I want to cover it, but I'm not able to cover it in the show. So this is a new segment. I, I love the name. I love, I love the title. It's one of my favorite memes from the Trump presidency, the former Trump presidency, I guess. And uh, let's start out with actually... Donald John Trump. So, Donald Trump has had a very bad week. I'm honestly a very bad month. Frankly, a very bad year. Uh, but really, Donald Trump, according to the Washington Post, I believe, Donald Trump thinks he will be reinstated as president in August. Sorry, not the Washington Post. Maggie Haberman, uh, from the New York Times. I remember that right now. Uh, so, Trump, it really, this really shows that Trump drank the Kool-Aid from QAnon himself, which is kind of crazy, uh, to think about. But, I, cause I almost always thought, that Donald Trump really didn't believe what he was saying, but he was, I know I use this term a lot, but that he was grifting in order to get money to pay off his campaign debts. Seems like that's not actually the case. Well, it's probably also the case, but Trump actually does believe that he will be reinstated in August. Uh, of course, my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, has pushed this for months. He's been canceled, as he says. He tried to start his own social media campaign. Uh, social media site, excuse me. And this site eventually flopped very badly, just like Donald Trump's own site that he started recently. Uh, He actually just recently took it down after 29 days. You may not remember it. It was from the desk of Donald Trump, basically Twitter, but even sadder kind of blog spot, frankly. And this Trump blog uh, was taken down because it had a very small engagement. Um, The other important thing to note is that Donald Trump, is sort of floundering right now. He may or may not go into 2022. Uh, he may or may not, you know, go into... He's not going to go to prison, but there are a, there's a huge criminal investigation opened up by New York AG Letitia James. So uh, that's actually a good segue into the New York City mayoral race, which new Emerson polling is showing that Catherine Garcia is leading in the New York City mayoral race after being endorsed by the New York Times. So what does this mean? So the big thing is that Catherine Garcia leading because she was endorsed by the New York Times, that's huge because there was a lot of discussion about the fact that the New York Times endorsement doesn't mean anything, but it in fact absolutely does. And it and it means something, especially in New York politics, where people aren't really paying that much attention. So Catherine Garcia, who is a—she's a, she, not a progressive, but she's at least— to the left of like Eric Adams. She is leading, uh, but she's also leading in head to head polling with Eric Adams, who is, um, number two on the list. Andrew Yang, who was supposed to be the front runner is trailing in third. Again, this is not because of the Israel Palestine thing. This is because of a, a variety of different things that have been occurring with Andrew Yang recently. Uh, but a, a major one in, in my opinion is the fact that like there was a debate and People saw other people in the debate. So um, New York voters just kind of left Andrew Yang because he had primarily soft support. So Catherine Garcia, Eric Adams, Andrew Yang, all three are in the front. Let me be clear. Emerson polling is not that great. I remember in the primary, it was kind of off in a lot of places. But uh, but Emerson polling shows that Catherine Garcia is ahead. Something very weird is that Scott Stringer just fell off the face of the earth. Um, primarily because of the sexual saw allegations that had come from, uh, I believe a staffer. Um, and not only that, you have Diane Morales, who was supposed to be this progressive star. I don't think I really ever supported her. Um, but I probably was looking more towards her than anyone else because, of course, it's, I, I think I probably saw her first on Twitter. Uh, of course, always a bad idea to look at, to look at Twitter for, um, politics. So Diane Morales is a progressive star. Um, but she seems to have ties to charter schools and also yet a huge campaign shakeup. I think Ryan Grimm had a good write up on this where he basically mentions that campaign shakeups like this are almost always in bad faith and they are almost always silly. But even when that happens, uh, Diane Morales is still having her own issues in that campaign. So the New York City mayoral race has been tossed up yet again and we still don't know who's going to win. I predict. I'm not a good predictor, but I predict Eric Adams wins. Uh, but if it's not Eric Adams, I actually do still think Andrew Yang would win. Uh, but maybe Catherine Garcia pulls ahead. Finally, not finally, there's another story. Didn't see it. Um, actually, let's start with that one. There is a Mexican legislative election coming up. Um, AMLO's coalition, which is called Juntos Hacemos Historia, which is actually... what uh, That means together we make history. It's actually a remake of of an old coalition called Juntos Haremos Historia, which sounds similar, but if you speak Spanish, haremos is the future tense of hacer, which means together we will make history. But Then he won, and then now it's Juntos Hacemos Historia, kind of funny to me. Um, He's slated to win an even larger majority than he did in 2018. Now, AMLO, frankly, he handled COVID poorly. Uh, He was not a great leader for Mexico, but as a populist, you know, you blame other people and you come out on top. So AMLO seems as if he he might win. By the way, even if AMLO isn't good, uh, let's be very clear, the PRI also isn't great in Mexico. That being said, um, AMLO is probably going to win a large majority in the coming elections. I think they're also on June 6th, like the Peruvian elections. Finally, an interesting one from Arizona. Not great, but it's been making the rounds. Arizona is using hydrogen cyanide to execute prisoners. For those who don't know, the hydrogen cyanide is sometimes known as Zyklon B. Zyklon B was used, of course, during the Holocaust. So you have this very dystopian um, picture where Arizonan police officers, Arizonan correctional facilities are checking whether their gas chambers work, which is not something we want to see in America. Uh, But Arizona hasn't executed someone since 2014. They stopped executions after the botched execution of James Wood. I mean, I guess he died, so it wasn't that botched, but it was botched in the sense that it took two hours and 15 injections until he was murdered. Uh, or until he was killed. Until he died. I'm trying to think of how to word that, but I guess you can say until he was executed. Okay, so the death penalty is bad. Of course, I've mentioned that multiple times, maybe not in the program, but if you know me and you know my advocacy, I have been against the death penalty for a bit. Uh, so of course, this just shows the cartoonish levels to which the death penalty is just completely insane inside uh, not just Arizona, but the United States writ large. Okay, next week, we will talk about the Supreme Court and abortion, hopefully. I've put that one off for quite a bit. And I think we will also dissect H.R. 1 and the Biden administration's push to pass it, which is being blocked by Republicans and importantly, moderate Democrats in the Senate. I'm probably not going to touch the filibuster. I might. I might not. Uh, I don't really like talking about the filibuster. Okay. So you can find me on Instagram at Real Raymond Perez, on Twitter at Real R. Perez for more political content. Of course, you can go to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez. Great stuff there. You'll never miss an episode of In Progress if you do that. You can, of course, watch In Progress with Raymond Perez wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. You can follow me on YouTube, subscribe on YouTube, uh, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and Pocket Casts. We're looking very strongly at Apple Podcasts. We're looking very strongly at Apple. I will be there next week if you will. And remember, the change we need to see is always in progress. Thank you for watching.